0: In the mid-1960s, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson made a rather remarkable discovery. It is worth noting that neither of these men were trying to make a groundbreaking discovery, even though what they found really turned out to be the foundation of modern cosmology itself. They were just two average gentlemen going about their ordinary routines, working for Bell Laboratories in New Jersey at the time, trying to fine-tune a microwave radio antenna called the Holmdel Horn Antenna, which looks something like a giant boxy cornucopia. And then, well, a hissing noise. And not more than a pigeon's flight away, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson discovered something phenomenal. Their antenna, it turns out, could detect microwave light. Microwaves are a form of invisible light to the naked eye, And in the early 1960s, AT&T was attempting to harness the power of microwaves for communication, trying to better understand how light signals are transmitted through Earth's atmosphere. So, as the story goes, the duo kept hearing this hiss coming from the antenna. And at first, they believed the unwanted noise to be coming from something man-made. But after ruling out any kind of terrestrial or technological interference, they assumed the noise to be the result of two pigeons who often roosted inside the structure. So, the two men climbed up inside the chamber of the antenna and saw to it the pigeons were taken care of. Penzias recalls what they did: quote, the only humane way of doing it was to buy a box of shotgun shells. So that's what finally happened to the pigeons. End quote. Bang! After sending the birds back into the heavens, to the scientists' dismay, the hiss was still in the antenna. They quickly realized the noise must actually be coming not from the roosting-winged inhabitants of the heavens, but from the very heavens themselves. As physicist Stephen Barr says, what Penzias and Wilson were actually hearing was, quote, a whisper from the Big Bang, end quote. What they discovered really exists. Particles of light, photons that sizzle and fill the universe. Astronomers and cosmologists say all these light particles are leftovers from the original expansion or explosion or beginning of the universe. These little light fizzies had been predicted to exist before they were actually discovered. If the universe just kind of expanded into existence, that initial event would have been hot and dense and would have left behind some kind of detectable radiation. Little did Penzias and Wilson know, however, that the annoying hiss they first thought to be roosting pigeons and all their droppings would turn out to be sizzling particles of light that would eventually bestow upon them Nobel Prizes. The Big Bang. It is a pejorative term coined by the late British astronomer Fred Hoyle, who did not like the idea of a universe with a beginning. And the Big Bang is a controversial subject among Christians. Some believers affirm it, some don't. Some believe it nicely dovetails with the Book of Genesis, for example, a kind of proof that the universe had a beginning. Others, such as the early 20th century Belgian priest and mathematician Georges Lemaitre, sometimes referred to as the father of the Big Bang, disagreed. He did not think it wise to conjoin a scientific theory to scripture too closely. What would happen, for example, to scripture if the science changed? But what about the cosmic microwave background radiation for which Penzias and Wilson won Nobel Prizes? Does it prove the Big Bang? For myself, I think it is circumstantial evidence that requires more investigation. But what is inescapably true about this mysterious microwave light is that it is incredibly uniform in its temperature and distribution throughout the universe. As Stanford theoretical physicist Leonard Susskind says, The microwave radiation coming from the surface of last scattering is almost identical in all directions of the sky. This extraordinary degree of homogeneity and isotropy is somewhat puzzling and needs an explanation. End quote. In short, the smooth, even distribution of this microwave light forces scientists who study it to conclude that the very beginning of the universe, whatever it was, had to be extraordinarily organized. Consider for a moment how J.R.R. R. Tolkien portrayed light in The Lord of the Rings. The numinous language of creation for Tolkien seemed to be something that was at once both playful and somber, joyful yet tinged by fiery trials. Nowhere better is this exemplified than in Gandalf's fireworks display, situated in the beginning of his epic. It is there we sit with the hobbits under the canopy of Eventide, eagerly awaiting a fantastic luminous spectacle. The narrative from the chapter, The Long-Expected Party, sings like the mythopoeic Let There Be refrains of Genesis 1. Here's how Tolkien describes Gandalf's magical fireworks display. Quote, there were rockets like a flight of scintillating birds singing with sweet voices. There were green trees with trunks of dark smoke. Their leaves opened like a whole spring unfolding in a moment, and their shining branches dropped glowing flowers down upon the astonished hobbits, disappearing with a sweet scent just before they touched their upturned faces. There were fountains of butterflies and they flew glittering into the trees. There were pillars of colored fires that rose and turned into eagles or sailing ships or a phalanx of flying swans. There was a red thunderstorm and a shower of yellow rain and there was a forest of silver spears." End quote. The finale of the evening's display, however, was a fierce and unexpected quote, "red golden dragon, not life-size but terribly lifelike. Fire came from his jaws. His eyes glared down. There was a roar. End quote. Here in the visage of a fiery serpent was both light and terrifying awe, luminous grandeur and terrible darkness, which caused many of the hobbits to fall quote, flat on their faces. End quote. There be dragons in that light by design. We might say that the cosmic microwave background radiation created a similar stir among the hobbit physicists and cosmologists down here on Earth. For contained within this enigmatic light of the very early universe, the seeds of everything we know to exist today. It is not just that the CMB was smooth, but that the very beginning of the universe had to be so precise, so highly organized, as to produce not only this incredibly uniform microwave radiation but trees and birds and flowers and eagles and sailing ships and even old J.R.R. R. Tolkien himself. Gandalf's magic fireworks, we might say, were finely tuned, specifically designed to take the shapes they did. Welcome to the strange world of fine-tuning. The late physicist John Archibald Wheeler, who coined the term black hole, said in an interview shortly before his death in 2008, quote, the world is a crazy place, and the way it's organized is truly crazy. But we have to be crazy enough to see what that way is if we are really going to understand this physical world. It's not just a matter of nice, simple formulas. End quote. Physicist Roger Penrose notes that, quote, There are some key aspects to the nature of our actual universe that are so exceptionally odd though not always fully recognized as such, that if we do not indulge in what may appear to be outrageous flights of fantasy, we shall have no chance of coming to terms with what may well be an extraordinary, fantastical-seeming underlying truth. End quote. So come along for the next few podcasts here on Good Heavens as we explore some of the basics of the extraordinary, fantastical-seeming truths of fine-tuning with our good friend Alan Hainlein. Allen graduated summa cum laude with a bachelor's degree in physics from the University of Texas at Austin. He received a master's equivalent degree in systems and software engineering from the University of Texas, continuing engineering studies. And his most recent education included graduate study at Biola University in the science and religion program. He also taught a physical science course as an adjunct professor at the college at Southwestern in 2016. Allen worked at the University of Maryland briefly on software related to particle accelerators and then at Raytheon for over a decade in software engineering. He led the team responsible for the image processing algorithms and software for the world's first high-resolution satellite, Iconos. For many years, this and a later satellite were the primary sources of imagery for Google Maps and other applications. Allen became one of the first engineering fellows in software engineering at Raytheon Garland in 1999. He has published peer-reviewed papers and presented at technical conferences. Allen currently runs a small company, Omega Software, focused on algorithm development for various artificial intelligence imaging applications in the commercial satellite imaging domain. Allen has served on the board of directors for William Lane Craig's Reasonable Faith Organization and on the advisory board for Daniel Wallace's Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. Alan leads the apologetics groups at UT Dallas and at his church, Lake Point Church in Rockwall, Texas, which focuses on having a weekly apologetics meeting on two public high school campuses. Alan has been happily married for 31 years to Rose, and they have two sons and two daughters. Alan went through a period of doubts and skepticism, but after years of researching historical, scientific, archaeological, and philosophical evidence— He concluded that there is far better evidence for Christianity than for other religions or for atheism. We hope you enjoy these upcoming conversations with Alan on the wonders of fine-tuning. Well, hello, Alan. How are you today?
1: doing great. Really happy to be here.
0: You're back. You, we had you on uh, when I didn't have such a great microphone and now <laughs> things have changed. We've fine-tuned the microphone and the quality of our audio.
1: <laughs> Big fan of fine-tuning in many ways. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. So you're here today to talk about uh, fine-tuning. So you've got uh, you've got 10 minutes. You think you can do
1: it? I can try. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right because uh, some of some of our audience members may familiar with fine-tuning. Uh, it is a fantastic thing that's been around uh, the scientific community for decades now, uh, since the 80s. Uh, or even formally, 70s in the 70s. The 70s before that, few, so yeah. uh, it's something that's really rattled, really rattled the astronomical community, the physics community, and people are, what do we do with this? What is this? So we want to try to get Christians and non-Christians alike talking about fine-tuning. What is it Why is it important? Why do I need to know this? If I'm shopping at Costco and I can get fruit and vegetables and everything that I need, why do I need to know about fine-tuning? What's the point? Uh, So we're going to talk about that a little bit. I want to read a quote from the royal astronomer Martin Rees, who said in 1999 in the introduction to his book, Just Six Numbers. uh, Mr. Rees, Dr. Rees writes, Astronomy is the oldest numerical science crucial in ancient times for calendars and navigation. It is now experiencing a surge of discovery. The enhanced focus on time as we enter the new millennium is boosting interest in our cosmic environment. Astronomy is still the science of numbers, and this book, Just Six Numbers, is the story of six that are crucial for our universe and our place within it. What's interesting in that quote, I think, Alan, is the idea of navigation. We used to navigate, still do to some degree, by the stars. And uh, that needs to be critically precise if we want to know where we're going, right?
1: Absolutely. In fact, I work a lot in uh, commercial satellite imaging, and that's, we use it in that context as you well. Use, that's fantastic. We use star trackers. Our, our, we image star trackers to calibrate the gyros so that you know where the satellite's pointing on the ground.
0: That's awesome. And in that same book that I just read from Reese, he, t- he says that uh, he, he, he likens uh, modern... Physics, the idea of a finely tuned universe, uh, he uses the analogy of cartographers from long ago who he says wrote on the edges of their maps. There be dragons, right? <laughs> so the old <laughs> the old maps uh, don't that don't have the whole Earth on them. The boundary lines uh, have dragons on them. People don't know what's going on, and I think in a lot of ways the universe seems to have dragons on its peripheral, right? We don't know what's out there. It's sort
1: of that dragon of the gaps yeah. kind of argument.
0: Huh? <laughs> so, um, but it's 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 critically important that how how curious it is that far away stars are. Um, are uh, friendly to our getting around on this little dot of a planet, right? So let's get into the very nuanced and very specific aspects of what science calls fine-tuning. So, Alan, what, in a nutshell, is fine-tuning?
1: Well, fine-tuning is a metaphor that I think everyone can understand, which is why they, they chose it. But you can picture someone tuning knobs or dials you were messing around trying to get the sound just right in this room here by doing a little bit of fine tuning often in situations in engineering you end up having to adjust a number of variable parameters to get something just right and
0: you got to get the satellite science right to make those satellites fly right
1: yeah there's a lot that goes into that absolutely uh, and almost anything there is, and it turns out for a universe to support life, it's also something which seems to require fine-tuning.
0: So we're talking about uh, parameters in science that must be there in order for physical life to exist.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of different kinds of fine-tuning that could be discussed. The term itself, within physics, it should be pointed out, doesn't necessarily imply design, but it's speaking of, of a situation where you have a suspiciously precise parameter setting among a wide range of possibilities within a candidate theory. Um, In that scenario, it's said that it requires fine-tuning, and it would be disfavored relative to other rival theories that don't require fine-tuning. So sometimes it can be a guide to a deeper theory, a new theory, a better explanation. One example that I, I point to that I think people can understand more easily than some of the abstractions in physics is continental drift. So um Alfred Wegener in 1912 proposed the theory of continental drift because he noticed that it looks as though you could take continents like South Af- South America and Africa you know looked like you can piece them together if you shift them over and it's a lot more than just that though he noticed that there were fossil patterns that if you brought the continents together would form continual lines crossing those boundaries. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with mineral patterns. So there's all these independent lines of evidence that seemed to support the theory of continental drift. But he was a bit ahead of his time because no one at that point knew of a mechanism. And it wasn't until much, much later that they actually convinced everyone that that theory was correct. Mm. But if you think about the static continental uh, theory, the the theory that continents are just static in terms of their locations – those things would have all been coincidences. Like Mm -hmm. there would be no underlying reason to expect patterns to match at boundaries of continents. But you have a a deeper theory that could explain all the data in a very tidy way. And it's similar to what could happen in fine tuning. So you you, one one deeper explanation candidate that we're going to talk about today, I'm sure would be whether there's a fine tuner, a cosmic fine tuner, namely God.
0: Right. Does does this argument uh, get us to a supreme being
1: but one of the interesting things is obviously many scientists don't believe in God, many do as well but even the ones that don't believe in God are looking for a deeper explanation based on this data so it's getting a lot of attention, it's very widely affirmed within the physics community Mm -hmm. and it's it's worth studying totally independent of whether there's these theistic implications which I think, personally I think God is the best explanation of the fine tuning data.
0: Uh Well it's like uh, you walk into a grocery store and it 's all arranged uh, you and if you 've been there a few times, you know where to go to get stuff. You have a, a honeydew list to do today i 'm sure that uh, is organized according to certain priorities uh, <laughs> but you uh, you go to the the stores or wherever you have to go, and you 've always noticed that they are curiously arranged for people to uh, access them and so something that we 're talking about is like we 're in a giant store, and everything seems to be peculiarly arranged and Why is that, and you know can science tell us this so I guess the second question I had would be, especially for believers, why should we be concerned about uh, this, what sounds like an awfully lot of scientific knowledge? What what would benefit uh, believers from being more involved or have a better understanding of fine-tuning?
1: I think it's a very important area to examine because you're just looking at what mainstream science is saying is true. It's very well-accepted science that the fine-tuning claims are based off of. And it's at the very most foundational level, so it's least prone to being called a god of the gaps argument, which I think often that's used in contexts that don't make sense. Right, right.
0: So the metaphor— Anyway, but— The fine-tuning metaphor, if I'm getting this correctly, is the idea uh, of—the metaphor is uh, the idea of a a radio or something where you dial— a certain station like 107.5 and you right on that frequency you get a certain uh, genre of music a certain uh, station will come in at a certain frequency and so fine-tuning is something like that right that you the there are numbers as martin Rees says in the universe that seem to be dialed very precisely like uh, like uh, radio numbers on an fm or an am frequency correct is that the metaphor is that the proper picture that's right
1: once once we've gotten to our most fundamental understandings of things like gravity or electromagnetic magnetism, there seems to be a wide range of possible strengths for those forces, or if we look at particle masses, the fundamental particles such as the electron or quarks which make up the protons and neutrons. It seems from everything we know that the particle masses could have been much, much greater than they are. Why is it that they have the values they do? Why is the relationship of the – if you look at the ratio of the proton mass to the electron, it seems to be just right for chemistry and for stellar fusion and different things like that. So, so it would be
0: like asking the question, why does milk – you know, what your kids ask you, mom, why does milk come in a gallon? Or why, is, why, why do they put packages of nuts in six- and eight-ounce sizes? You know, what's the point of – these very precise ways in which we package things. It seems like the universe has those same kinds of quantities, you're saying, and no one really knows why. Is that true?
1: I think it's even stronger than that. I mean, a lot of human things are not (laughs) always matched that well, right? Right. Like the uh, Father of the Bride movie where he gets frustrated (laughs) with the the buns and the number of uh, wieners being mismatched. But, But, yeah, in the universe it seems that you have this wide range of possibilities and only tiny, tiny subsets of those permit life. Mm. And you have all these, the the conjunction of all these independent things, it really seems to point to some deeper explanation. There's coincidences on top of coincidences. Okay. So do
0: you have to be a physicist to appreciate fine-tuning?
1: I think the more you learn about it, the deeper you can have an appreciation of it. But I I do think that you can understand the concept pretty easily without knowing that much about physics.
0: Okay. Well, that was just basically an introduction to the topic. And uh, for the next few broadcasts, if you're interested, we will uh, be talking more in depth about what fine-tuning is. And so we hope that this at least gives you an insight, something that would give you the encouragement to pursue more. Uh, Alan, can you recommend briefly a good introductory work? Uh, if somebody was just going to get one book on the subject, what would you recommend?
1: Well, I'm a big fan of the, Bar- the Luke Barnes book that he co-authored with Geraint Lewis, which is called A Fortunate Universe.
0: Okay, in the description below, we'll put a link to Luke's book on Amazon and you can check it out. It's a, it's a nice dialogue about fine-tuning, what it is, where it comes from, and what are the implications of it. So we do hope that you check that out and we do hope that you stay tuned for more on a more in-depth look of what fine-tuning is in our next episodes.